This podcast is brought to you by the new courses on offer over at fxphd.com with a huge range of topics from motion graphics to the new RenderMan. Plus, you can even sample an entire class from our new 300-level new course. Just go to fxphd.com slash blog. Hi and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour and this week we are going to the apes. Uh, we are at dawn of Planet of the Apes, the second in the non-reboot, non-sequel something films that add the bit between the one that we didn't like and the ones we loved from our youth. And I'm joined on the line by Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am excellent. And Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? Uh, excellent as well. So who here didn't love it when uh, Heston dropped to his knees and screamed, damn you all to hell? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just, as a kid, I thought that was spectacularly good film. Oh, me too. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's so funny. As a kid, like growing up, I was like maybe kind of like a, a, a way too big of a fan of Planet of the Apes. I, I, I saw all the movies. I, I loved the, even the really bad short-lived uh, TV show. I had some of the Planet of the Apes, uh, like dolls <laughs> as a kid. And I remember, I think one of the reasons I liked it so much when I was a kid is that my dad, I think hated that I liked it. And so <laughs> that, that made it really cool. You know, like he, he would come in and he, he grew up in the Midwest in the United States and he would come in if I was watching it on TV. And I remember he would say, Oh, ish, which I guess ish. is short for like, ish kabibble you know which is an ex <laughs> um, sort of a, a scandinavian expression or something i think somebody can correct me if i'm wrong about the etymology yeah. of that but yeah but uh but it was always it was something i i always loved and so i've been a huge fan of uh the whole planet of the apes sort of uh franchise for ever since i was a little kid what about you uh did you guy uh jumping over to to you jason did you love that and did you like the last film like the one that uh you know preceded this from the current sort of crop i love all the uh original planet of the apes movies especially because i love charlton heston's ridiculousness in all its glory um i also love the simpsons stop the planet of the apes i want to get off <laughs> musical with uh, troy, awesome. troy mcclure and uh i did not see the previous James Franco uh, iteration, I guess, I guess, uh, episode one of this new uh, series. But I heard good things about it. I just never, for some reason, got around to seeing it. Well, that's that's kind of good, actually, because you can give us a perspective if this one made any sense, given that you hadn't seen that. Um, had you seen the other one, Matt? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'd seen it a couple times. I, I even watched it. Um, recently before going to see this just to kind of like refresh my uh, memory. And I kind of also too, I wanted to compare um, the look, you know, that was achieved in both too. So I was kind of doing a little, uh, I, I called it research, you know, but it was, you, it was just basically goofing off, you know. <laughs> did you find, did you find that it was connected enough that you needed, you didn't need to, but that seeing the first one close to seeing this one, that there was a lot of, crossover or or continued continuation or was 
do they sort of stand alone? I I think you could you could probably have seen this one and not seen the first one. I mean, I don't know. You would know better. I mean, I I don't I don't have that uh, experience. Other than I do think there were some uh, referential plot points that took place, which I think they did a good job of sort of filling in the backstory. But like you know, the the primary one I thought was just the image of uh, the window, right? Which was sort of like the yeah. the window in the attic of the building, which was something that was really sort of a you know uh, an important plot point in the first film was sort of his uh, view, view of, the, of yeah. the behavior of man through this window, and so it but became kind of this. I am um, I uh, yeah I, I don't think you would need to to understand what that was. It would seem like a slightly odd shot looking up at that um, if you didn't know, but not enough that would bug you. I think, and then later, of course, he gets the video camera, so it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that that. Um symbol that's on the rock on the main rock you know in the yeah. movie just you know made it didn't wasn't confusing to me because i didn't know that it had significance and then for it to be revealed as significant at the end when they do that push over caesar's shoulder looking out the window and you see the shape was actually a great reveal so they they managed to work multiple layers of you know uh continuation from the previous one and actual thematic plot sort of roll out without it just being sort of a toss in um it worked really well i all of a sudden yeah, i went back cool. to flashing like i was like oh that's what all the symbols mean you know and that's the house that franco was in and that's the like it all ties together it's almost like a book a bookend and it was i, I really liked that before we go too much further, I just want to do a bit of a disclaimer. I actually did some, or I have been doing work with Weta uh, in various capacities. And so just as a disclaimer on that, um, I sort of have a connection on this film. But even if I didn't, I think this film is remarkably great. Uh, and just this new Dawn one is uh, what you want from summer box office. Like it's a really, really good film. And I'm going to get into why I love it so much in particular in terms of the ape acting. Um, but if you haven't already seen it, we've got some stories up on FX Guide, including FX Guide TV, <coughs> where we sat down with Joe LaTerry and one of the supervisors, um, Eric, and ran through stuff. And that's uh, also a sort of a cut down, I, know, I guess a, a short thing on the acting is what we've done for Wired as well. So all of that's um, over at fxguide.com. So I, I confess right out of the gate, I love it. I have one huge problem, and I'll come to it in a second. But um, what about you, Matt? Like, just generally as a review of the film, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> nobody in my family, including my 10-year-old son, wanted to go see this movie with me. Oh, so really? I was, I was kind of on my own for this one. <laughs> but, I mean, it's kind of okay. Like, I feel like it was – It's my wife was like, uh, you know, I'll pass. Like, it was not really her cup of tea, I guess. But, but um, you know, for me, uh, I, I went opening day uh, to see it. I was, I was pretty amped for it. Um, and I think part of it, too, is just, you know – having seen uh some of the trailers beforehand and kind of knowing um some of the technology and some of the sort of uh, the success of the visuals with regards to uh caesar in particular as well as um maurice uh in the first film i was really excited to see uh what they were going to do uh effects wise in this film to really push it further and you know also to the advancement of the plot you know that here we are now in a stage of the larger narrative where um, we're seeing kind of a, uh, you know, almost a post, well, I mean, a, a post-apocalyptic uh, interpretation of Earth where, you know, the the ape culture has uh, grown and established sort of a, 
a colony of their own that is, you know, sort of the mirror of what's the remnants of the human population, the people who are sort of the genetic, uh, genetically immune to the simian flu, right? So, I mean, all these things. And then, of course, the, the shot in the trailer of, um, I can't remember, it must have been, uh, uh, what's his name? Koba? Uh, Koba? Yep. Yeah. Uh, with the machine gun on the horse. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's so ridiculous and so over the top, but it's so it's planet of the apes, you know, and, and when you see that in the trailer, I mean, I don't care what the rest of the movie is like. I'm, I, you, I, I bought my ticket when I saw that in the trailer. I'm just like, I'm, I'll be there. You know, it had no me doubt. a type and, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think in the end, I would, I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I think it was, uh, I feel like I've been gushing, uh, about a lot of the movies lately, but this one really like for me, I think just in part because of my, my childhood fandom for this, uh, franchise, I think I, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was so much fun. And the, um, the work, the, uh, of all the, the apes in the film is just staggering. It's phenomenal. It's unlike anything I've seen, uh, on screen before. So just at the film level, Jason, what do you think? Um, I I agree. I mean, <clears throat> the um, you know to have movies like this that that are strong enough to open with no with very little dialogue, you know, like a Wally or like you know uh, even even a Gravity for a certain to a certain extent, um, you have a movie that's carrying purely on the visuals and digital visuals uh, that are, that need to be based in reality for so long before the humans come in and to, to develop all those characters through sign language and body language and acting and very, you know, just the little primitive beginnings of, of language uh, is astounding. And also to open and close the movie, not to get too technical yet, but to open and close the movie on a purely digital extreme close up totally, you know yeah. is is it's almost showing off isn't it <laughs> it's a total show off but but it's but it's a plot but point. it works yeah, yeah it's a no, plot point works. but it's a total like yeah yeah we're gonna do that we're gonna do that and we're gonna end on it too and we're gonna do not you, only we're gonna push all the way in on it but do you want to guess what my one major crit- you're never gonna guess but you want to have a crack at what my one major criticism is uh that san francisco doesn't looks too much like new orleans no, my criticism <laughs> is that the uh, poster they released with the ape in the water with San Francisco Bridge burning behind has um, got nothing to do with the film. The take, for a start, there is no plowing through the water with San Francisco Bridge burning behind. In fact, San Francisco Bridge doesn't burn in the film. In fact, if it did have a separate section, it would fall over because it's a suspension bridge. So <laughs> I don't know where the art department at the marketing area of the Fox uh, Corporation went to. But uh, it wasn't to see this film when they decided to pull that uh, poster up, which is, uh, you've probably seen it. It's got, uh, I think it's Cobra. You can't really tell because you're looking at the screen uh, on back of horseback holding a gun above his head, uh, jumping through water with all the other apes beside him down on the water in, I guess, Sausalito in a moment where they went for lunch or something during the making of the film. I don't know. It's got nothing to do with the film I saw. But anyway, that's my, uh, that's my criticism. Yeah. I think if I, I mean, that's actually, that's funny to say you felt like, you know, you, that was a scene you were waiting to see and it never came up in the film, but what the? I was going to say if, if, uh, if there was any one thing in particular that I thought was probably maybe not so strong in the film, there's, there's a couple of VFX shots that I, I can bring up later, but, um, uh, the, the human acting <laughs> is pretty, uh, it's, it's, it functions at a level that I think, you know, it's great for, you know, 
12 and 13 and 14 year olds, you know, like it's, it kind of tells the story that you want to tell, but there's, there's very little believable drama I thought on the part of the human actors. Um, and maybe that's, you know, a big ask in a planet of the apes movie anyway. I don't know, but, um, uh, I think that if I was going to be nitpicky, that was the, I didn't care really as an audience member, I was just kind of along for the ride. And I was like, all right, you know, suspension of disbelief. I have to, there's a lot to go with, you know, in order for this film to even work, uh, as a science fiction film. But I thought the human acting was, um, there just, there wasn't a whole lot for the act. I, not that the actors are bad. I just don't think there was a whole lot for them to do in terms of well, really emoting story wise. Well, also that's cause the story is very, it, it's, you know, Shakespearean. But it's it's basic. It's it's humans are reduced and apes are up and humans have nice people and they have dicks and human and apes have nice apes and they have dicks. And it's like, you know, what I mean, but that's kind of like, nice, though, also, isn't it? That it wasn't just all is good and all is bad. Yeah, um, no, it was, it was nicely layered. And, you know, the ones that caused problems for the humans are the same ones that caused problems for the apes on the ape side. You know what I mean, like it was a nice mirror to basically be like, listen, we're all we're all in this together. We're all the same. You guys got to pull it. Everyone's got to pull it together. And like, you know, Rodney King style, you know, can't we all just get along? <laughs> if if I hadn't seen this film and I was, you know, judging it from uh, a discussion of it coming out, um, I would have said that I would have predicted, I guess, that Maurice from the first film would once again be a steel scener from Caesar, because Caesar, wow, terrific. Um, I just found Maurice in the first film to be just singularly remarkable as the orangutan. Just, I just thought it was spectacular. And so I've expected that again. And also there are shots in the second film, especially when Maurice is teaching the young apes, that I think are just gorgeous. I mean, I would take a frame of that and put it as a poster on the wall. It's just layered and wonderful and just terrific. And when Maurice is reading the comic book um, later in the film, again, just brilliant. The only thing I'd say, though, is that you can't say that Maurice steals the film from Caesar because Coba, in my opinion, completely successfully steals totally the scene agree. from yeah, Caesar. Absolutely agree. Um, and I'm not saying that Caesar's bad in any respect. It's just, in a sense, Caesar's the good guy that does the good things that, you know, is the kind of rock of Gibraltar. And well, and I think it, it kind of almost gets into that thing that you see in uh, in other films, too, where it's like, in a way, the villain... Uh, who, you know, Koba essentially, right, is the villain, is almost a more fun role for an actor to play. You'll hear actors say that a lot, right? Like, though, I, I love playing the bad guy. You know, you kind of, that's sort of a, a common trope that you hear actors uh, throw out there because you can go big and you can kind of do things that are sort of outside of the scope of, you know, being, you know, maybe more the, the every man or every woman or whatever, you know, you get to sort of, uh, be a little bit more bombastic. And I think Koba's performance feels that way. There's a, a lot more range. And I think uh, while Caesar's really great, he is, yeah, he, I think uh, he's just a more stoic yeah. uh, character as the leader. So he doesn't get the opportunity to have quite as much um, sort of dynamism in the performance. Well, he's the and king, he's the king yeah. who's getting, you know, cheated, you know, behind his back. So it's always the, it's always the, that villain character that gets to, when you when the character gets to play both sides, it's all automatically like a broader character, right? And I will say this: I will say this. There's nothing that's technically shortchanged on Caesar. I mean, because what you already mentioned, the opening and closing shots on Caesar, are technically exquisite. It's not as if he's not given good, you know, um, shots or something. It's just that, yeah, as you say, it's just the acting it's... opportunities is just so much stronger for the. 
Yeah, it, for, it's, the, for the Cobra character. It's the function of, but it's a function of Caesar's character. He doesn't. He's already. The audience is already told right out of the gate that he's the king, right? So you've already established he's, that he doesn't have to yeah. be in every scene being the king. We already know it, so we have to have everyone else not being the king to make it stronger to, as you know opposition, or you know to him to his character. So as I made no, uh, you know, possible. Um, apology for in the wired piece i just decided to focus completely on cobra's performance at the raspberry scene and the adjoining scene um when he's uh um comes back and and uh let's fly with the machine gun um because i just thought that that was one of the best pieces of digital acting uh ever um like literally ever and i and i just quickly re-articulate it for those that haven't seen the wired piece why i say that when cobra is discovered in the armory and he then has to he blows a raspberry plays the fool and you know walks away and then manages to come back later without being um shot or whatever by the two kind of guards slash buffoons that are there the audience has to understand that the digital character cobra is acting stupid but not actually stupid that the audience has to completely understand that he's a digital character acting and then he's going to act on top of that with a performance that we can see through but the guys on screen can't and that has to all be 100% believable in a you know scene that's played out with normal cuts and lots of close-ups he just has to give a layered performance and like you don't get that very often if ever with digital characters that you you have to understand what they're thinking beneath what they're actually acting yet alone that it's believable that they'd be doing it in the first place and that they're sitting in the scene and they're lit correctly and the motion is believable and the physics is right and the weighting is right i mean the fact that we've gone beyond does he look real does he look like he's sitting there does he look like he's actually touching the props that he's touching to oh i get he's acting another role on top of the role he's playing kind of thing it's just remarkable i mean matt uh, stop me if i'm wrong but yeah no i would i would totally agree i think uh you know the scene that you cite in particular um where he kind of plays the almost like the circus chimp you yep. know like where he kind of um, or i guess he's a not a chimp but he's a uh what do you call those ones that he is he's a uh they're the like super sex crave you monkeys, can just call right? him an ape but okay, the name <laughs> the, or the Nobo or yeah, I can't remember the name of those. Um, but um, anyway, but but yeah, no, he's he's totally amazing. I think his uh, his performance, his uh, the conveyance of you know this sinister character who then you know plays the fool and you know kind of gets these guys thinking, oh, he wants a drink, you know, you want a drink, and that and that he grabs the uh, the rifle and then the look and the way that his subtle eye movements even like like a human actor would do right which is you know the capturing in the performance but also the augmentation with the animation you know there's the um the subtle like very slight small muscle movements in the eyes that convey so much thought so much um presence in a scene like that and there were a number of scenes not just that one in this film where you know we're with the apes and i thought that uh there were so many times where I forgot that what I was looking at was a digitally rendered character. I think that the achievement um, visual effects wise in this film, for me, it's on par. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a breakthrough 
uh, film in a lot of ways in terms of the, um, from, from my perspective, in terms of what they achieved here, I feel like I, I saw something that I had never seen before. Uh, there were moments where I was completely absorbed in what was happening and completely believed what I was seeing on screen. And to go back and see how some of those things are pieced together, I mean, it's just, it's a phenomenal uh body of work in that regard and there's such pathos in the fact that he has to behave like an idiot and like a fool given that he was tortured and and so badly treated at the hands of humans that he has to debase himself to survive i mean isn't this is all the stuff that you want from a really good performance full stop yet alone as we say like a digital creation with digital hair and uh you know all the stuff that you have to do to light that properly and make it look like it's sitting in the scene and you you know, there's just a ton of stuff. I mean, there's everything from being the right exposure so that you can read this dark creature with dark skin, with dark eyes, recessed back, you know, with these other white guys that are kind of standing out and that that all feels right and natural and no one's sitting out. Oh, I was going um, to say that. I mean, I from a lighting perspective in this movie, I love, you know, they're forced to use natural available light type sources or at least informed sources because, hey, there's no... You know, there's no uh, power, so you can't have like uber dramatic lighting because where would it be coming from, right? So mm. unless they're standing under a tree, and then you have like fake gobos and stuff like that creating, you know, dappled light. You know, you're really you're really stuck with sort of these broad sources. And I love that they didn't tr just like go beyond reality and say, oh, we have to fill in the eyes and you know make sure we can see in there. Like the eyes on the chimps are black fair amount of time like it's all this top lighting uh that from the sun or wherever they are that is amazing and to be able to still convey all the information um from in that scene like i i didn't see the original movie i didn't know any of Cobra's backstory but as soon as he did the raspberry i immediately knew what he was doing right away i said oh he's obviously trying to make sure that he doesn't get caught and he knows what humans want to see just knowing that the apes have evolved from regular apes to you know uh the the more advanced apes he knows what humans respond to and and to be for me like you're saying for me to be able to get that from a digital character on this on his character's flip like you would seeing an uh, you know a uh, human actor's face is insane yeah, and you know, I mean, the thing about it is that, uh, and I, I didn't actually get this in the article, but um, the, some of the guys that I was talking to over at Weta said that the director, Matt Reeves, really referenced uh, Godfather and a bunch of like um, Ridley Scott films, and that l the losing the eye thing is like a direct kind of di directive in terms of how the DOP lit it, but also how the, um, the digital animators uh, lit it. From the Godfather, because, you know, that's what happens when, um, uh, you know, you have those great scenes um, at the beginning of the original Godfather film. It's just these eyes mm -hmm. go into darkness. And it is amazingly great that you've got a director that's not afraid to allow that to happen because it would have been very easy to say, no, no, we have to see their eyes. I mean, that's almost like a, a you know, you, you'd almost find yourself doing it before the director said not to because you just know they're going to want to do that. And, and you're right. It was really well lit in that respect. I thought too, you know, in terms of the lighting, the other thing that I noticed a lot of that I thought was just really amazing, given uh, in particular with the the all the apes, the the hair, the body hair, uh, how much 
how much backlighting they were doing and the uh, the way that the light would sort of permeate uh, through the hairs, you know, when you'd see them uh, in the closing sequence that takes place on the, um, the, the digital set, the tower, you know, where they have the big battle at the end. I think there's a lot of shots where they're running in front of, um, you know, like work lights on the structure and stuff. And so you see them pass in front of these lights and the occlusion of the light, but then sort of the, um, the penetration of the light through the fur and sort of the wrap around, I thought was really, uh, just so well done. And they were so well integrated into all those environments, um, that it, you know, just, it was seamless. There was nothing to take you out of it. Uh, same, same as in their, uh, their home base too, like all the, the fire lights, you know, they did a lot of that kind of stuff with the firelight as well, where they had, they had, uh, torches and uh, a couple little, um, you know, sort of almost like campfires burning. Jason, uh, they shot this on the Alexa, which I thought was really interesting because they're using Alexa M. Normally, you'd expect uh, anything like this shot stereo where you're going to be moving the camera around a lot and be on location to be an epic, especially given the relationship we know that The Hobbit has, to, uh, which is, you know, similar filmmakers. Yeah. Not the same mm-hmm. filmmakers, but similar. Um, obviously, overlap. And so they use the Arri um, Alexa M. They had gushing things to say about um it in terms of its uh response what do you think it looked like in terms of the plate photography oh it looked gorgeous uh, i didn't even i didn't even bother to look at what it was shot on prior to going to see it i just wanted to go see it and you could you could easily say it was shot on film you know i i didn't even i didn't even say stop to look and say you know before i saw it if it was converted or actual 3d i did see it in 3d and Afterwards, I was pretty convinced that they actually shot stereo because it's just really, really nicely shot. And and the I think it goes back to the lighting discussion is that they really found a way to keep a cinematic and sort of filmic approach to the 3D so that it was almost like the 3D was secondary when they would block a scene or something. And then, you know, they obviously have to obey certain rules without making people's heads explode. Uh, but you know, I think that they, they took the right, they made the right choices. Also for me personally, as a, a favorite lens, they went with the Leica Summeluxes. Uh, mm. I would have thought they would go with the Summicrons because they were smaller, but there's probably not enough sets out there at the time they were shooting. They, actually, the Summicrons might not even, even been announced or shipping when they did the, the Lux, when they shot this, but I mean, in my estimation, those those two, the Summerlux and Summercron Cs, are the pinnacle of you know cinema lenses at this point. I use them whenever I can. I just shot some two things with the Summercrons, and you know, you put it, it, they're gorgeous. So they're really good, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Dan Lemon, I think it was, uh, was saying that, and I thought this is kind of interesting that you know the. I think it was Dan. You know, in the thousand frame shot, which is, in other words, the shot where um, Cobra jumps on the vehicle that is the kind of tank armored vehicle and it's firing and he then throws out the oh, guys yeah. that are yeah. there and it just keeps going as it rotates around. You see all the chaos until it finally runs into the building. Okay, so that, for those of you that don't know, that was all plate photography with the uh, apes added as. Um, as uh, digital now there were some explosions and rockets and stuff added but there were also a bunch of explosions that weren't um that were done for real that were just set off and in fact a little bit of trivia they were going to originally have the cannon of the vehicle firing causing explosions so if you actually watch that clip um maybe when you get it on dvd or if you go back to see it again 
as the sort of turret is passing things in the background, they all explode um, because originally it would have been firing, but then they realize if he throws the guys out, there's no one to fire it. So then they just put in extra rockets or whatever to imply. So it's kind of conveniently as it's facing forward, uh, things in front of it explode by coincidence now. But anyway, um, the point about those fireballs that they set off is if you're watching them, you don't get what I, I think um, either Dan... Uh, or it might have been Eric described as the kind of Michael Bay classic uh, golden um, orangey fireballs that are all beautiful and perfect. It actually looks like it goes into clip. It's very much like you don't see detail in the fires. And that apparently was the director wanting to keep it filmic. And so even though, of course, you could have put in digital ones where it would have allowed you to get an exposure that was also exposing for the night and for the explosions, he wanted... Uh, vapor lighting, so it looked kind of not blue like moonlight, but more kind of greeny. Um, and then he wanted that uh, clip that happens in the flames when you can't hold exposure, and by doing it, um, exposing for the street and not for the flames. And I, I thought all of those, plus the stuff he discussed earlier in terms of the reference to the Godfather and stuff, to be really great choices from the director. Because as much as I, I think Weta did a spectacular job, they've done it in the framework of a director who. I think gets it in terms of uh, what it needs to sell a movie like this and not having it all, you know, it didn't look like a series of car commercials. We'd gone from one classic setup to another. They were, they were cleverly imperfect shots from a cinematic point of view. Yeah, yeah I would agree. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a filmmaker's film in that respect. I mean, it definitely, uh, I think stylistically choices that are made throughout, like, I mean, it's, it's not a, um, I think they, 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 it seems to be grounded for the most part in a sort of a sense of a, like a visual realism, right? It, and even though it's, <laughs> you know, it's supernatural in a lot of ways, of course, but the, uh, I think it, it always felt grounded in a certain kind of reality. It gave everything kind of a gravitas and made the performances, I think of all of the, um, the apes in the story too, much more, um, potent, in that it felt like they were kind of, you know, that they were in a real world. Well, the, um, the DP shot, you know, Midnight Express and Angel Heart. So I think, you know, in terms of darker, <laughs> both from a tone and visual standpoint, that he's the guy for the job, you know what I mean? Yeah. Hey, you know another piece of uh, really superbly executed um, interpretation of the acting it's when the son goes to blows goes to meet uh, Coba, uh, sorry uh, Caesar at the house. Caesar's on the couch. The son turns up. Look, it's a it's a pretty much an almost a throw. I may be, I may be the only one that likes this scene, but I keep on bringing it up, so I'm going to not stop now. The son turns up with his rifle, and he kind of arrives at the door, and he, his father is alive but lying there looking sick. And there's this kind of whole lot of uh, terrific acting in terms of the son's expression. There's both. Relief to see his father, kind of shame that he's come to his father carrying a gun, which his father wouldn't want. And then he kind of delicately puts the gun just outside the door rather than even bringing it in. And there's just no dialogue there. But that stuff, that the door, and then what happens later as um, Caesar is lying there on the couch. And these super close-ups on the faces. I just thought that was just really well done. I mean, it just felt like good acting. I never felt like I couldn't sort of see what they were up to. It never felt like rubber masks. It never felt like they'd been anthropomorphized so much they didn't look like apes anymore. It was just a, a lovely balance. What, well, what do you think, Jason? Oh, sorry. I mean, I I agree. And I think that goes back to the, the director and the DP covering it 
not like CG and not covering it like, you know, something to be inserted later and just shoot a plate. Like they covered that like real coverage. And and I think those choices is what's making, you know, outside of, of, a, of a good script, I think is the thing that we're all responding to is that is that they're treating everything like it's real and like you would want to do it and not like you're supposed to do it or have to do it in specific visual effects rules or, or, or what have you studio rules. And, and, uh, I thought that scene was awesome. Although I did think while I was looking at it, that I thought they made blue eyes, face just a tad humanish. And maybe it was just too, in that scene, it seemed to like maybe they needed that to really sell the sort of you know connection. Uh, but when I looked at his face, I was like, I'm 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 getting just like just a hint of like human, which I guess is good. I mean, yeah, I think I, w- I would say I think those scenes are really tricky. Like I think that the scene you're talking about, Mike, in particular, where you know they he sees that his father's still alive back at the house. I mean, I think it works. Like, I mean, it definitely, you know, told the, it clearly told the elements of the story, but I, I would, I would probably disagree a little bit in that. I think that there are, there are three scenes uh, uh, with the apes that I felt like kind of took me just a tiny bit out, uh, of the sort of, um, you know, the mesal scene or whatever of the whole thing, right? Like that kind of pulled me out of it just a tiny bit. And one of them was that scene that you mentioned. The other um, were the scenes with the sick uh, mother, like Caesar's, uh, I guess, yeah. mate. I, I think uh, she I was thought, the least successful of the apes, in my opinion. Yeah, she reminded me in a way of uh, of the, and I think we talked about this with regards to Avatar, the Sigourney Weaver Avatar Right. You know how like the Sigourney Weaver avatar had this other kind of, I mean, she was like real chesty, but then she also had yeah. like her, uh, like a different nose, kind of a more human yeah. nose. And I think they explained it in a way like, you know, that it was sort of, you know, the hybridization of the genetic blah, 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 whatever. But, um, and I thought that the female ape took me out of it a little bit as well as the, um, the infant ape. I thought when it climbs on the, um, at the dam down near the water. Yeah, when when it when it comes out and they're having the uh, and it, it goes for the gun, right? You know, it, it's either, oh really? It, it's I thought moved. that was a really good scene. Yeah, I don't know. There was something about that. I thought that it maybe it's because it's um, it felt like again, like it was it was uh, it felt really formulaic as a moment in the story. But also, I thought the interaction. I don't know. There's something about the interaction that felt like it was not quite. Hmm. I thought it was uh, rather good actually. Dialed in. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I I actually really like that. Um, let's start at at, at uh, or not start. Let's jump to the beginning of the film. Um, what do we think about the uh, hunting sequence, culminating in the bear attack? Um, Matt, what did you think? Awesome. Yeah, totally awesome. I mean, the bear I thought uh, was so cool. Like a totally. Uh, I didn't. Ex- I didn't see that coming. I didn't expect that. That's what. Uh, was going to come out of the woods or whatever and he would confront the bear and then the bear stood up and i thought the the animation of the bear the rendering of the bear um i thought was it was really cool and it was fun to see too the apes um working together uh hunting there were also what like uh, deer right i think in some of the elk. scenes right there an elk and those were i thought those were really great too like they were uh 
there was one or two shots where they were they looked a little um like what they were right they look like animated characters just a little bit to me and that i think there was i don't know and maybe in some of the movement or some of the textures i'm not sure exactly what it was but there was where i was like oh okay that's a cg elk like i recognized it as being something that was digital but i really liked the way that scene played out in general where they're all sort of working together and hunting and then the way they the call and response when uh you know, the, the Caesar's son is in trouble mm. and the way he gets scratched, which I also thought was really great. It was convenient that he would get scratched in such a way that it made him, it gave him an identifiable um, <laughs> mark that allowed us to sort of differentiate him from so many of the other apes, because that seemed like that was also another big thing that would be difficult. To, you know, in the heroes, you want to be able to have a differentiation where you can sort of recognize who's who. And, you know, Koba's got the eye, Caesar's, you know, Caesar. And I think he's instantly recognizable, but the, uh, the scars I think really helped, but I thought it was a really cool scene. I thought it worked really well and it established, um, sort of their prowess with technology and that they had, they could do something, um, that humans couldn't do in a way like in, I mean, humans could obviously fight off a bear, but, but, uh, they did it in a way that, that, you know, humans probably wouldn't do it with the, I, I was thinking of, um, that Werner Herzog film, Grizzly Man you know, in that scene. And it was cool that I, I just thought it, it worked out really great. It was a neat, um, setup. See, I thought, I thought, I also thought, sorry, from a plot point of view that it gave us a way that the sun blue eyes could link with Cobra because the scars right. somehow let them have a moment on screen that let us believe that the sun would kind of be linking with Cobra in a way that was a bit special that would, you know, we'd need that later on for him to to be sort of going along with cobra and not be you know why the hell would he support cobra he just well, and felt... it was caesar's disappointment too right he says like think before you act or something like that right like and so it was sort of caesar was sort of disappointed in his son and i think that was also you know a component in that sort of pushing him sort of away and then the birth of the the new baby and all the kind of the family dynamics right was sort of a part of the seemed like that was a part of the 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 connection as well. Yeah. It's like a, the scars are like a Braveheart moment kind of, uh, it was Koba who stabs the bear, right? Yeah. Yeah. Koba jumps down and thus rescues. Right. And that yeah. was, that was the, that was the, the part of the scene that I really liked. Like it's, it's a t traditional setup, you know, someone's in, in danger, inevitably in the forest, someone gets cornered by a bear. It was like, uh, the edge that, you know, uh, Anthony, uh, Anthony, what's his name? Movie, um, but the uh, I really liked the way they showed Koba sort of jump in the air, and he's like really suspended for a long time with the with the spear, and he's just sort of like gliding down, and you know he's going to get the bear, but they really let that moment breathe uh, really nicely because usually it's the other way around, right? Usually it's the it's the victim on the ground with the spear, and someone pushes the bear bear forward that lands on top of the guy with the spear and inadvertently kills the bear with gravity, right? Because you're not allowed to kill the bear because, you know, the audience won't like you if you kill the bear. Right, so it has to be yeah. inadvertent, but the apes can, yeah. apes can kill the bear because they're animals. So yeah. the Superman audience... Lets, Superman lets several million people die before he finally kills anyone to stop right. them because, right. he, God forbid, he should save a lot of lives by killing anyone. Yeah, I know. Um, here's another scene I thought was strong and technically well accomplished. It was complex it's the fight between cobra and caesar in the in the dam and i say it's technically complex because you've got 
the actors, it's a confined space. Um, and I'm wondering, Matt, whether you could speculate or discuss, I guess, from your sort of position, because you obviously, you know, understand the technology well. What does it mean to do that as a live motion capture in that damn set, as opposed to kind of rigging it up with boxes on a soundstage? Well, I think uh, being able to do any of that kind of stuff on set is going to be so much more useful across the board for for the accomplishment of you know making the scene seem real. I mean, it's going to be real on a number of levels, much more real in that the actors who are in the scene are reacting to something that's actually going on in front of them. They're in the real environment. Um, there's an opportunity to interact with the actual objects in the environment. You're getting the actual lighting in the scene. Um, you, there might be dust that gets kicked up that you maybe wouldn't be able to still use, but it would be, uh, something that would provide you with great reference, um, moving forward. I mean, I think, you know, that was a great, uh, scene. I thought all the stuff that took place, uh, in that fight was really well executed. I think it's really interesting, you know, I haven't read a ton about it, but what they did with regards to the, um, taking all the performance capture stuff and bringing it out and putting it on set, I think is, is, uh, pretty exciting. I know right before the show, uh, there was another thing too, that Ian posted, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but it was a Carnegie Mellon thing where they're doing uh, dynamic real-time capture without markers of, uh, environments using a bunch of cameras. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw that thing, but it's a, it's something that's going to be at Seagraph, I guess. Mm in a couple of weeks, but really cool. But this, so this, uh, Weta, you know, taking all this stuff and bringing it and putting it on set. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was, it was really great. It added, uh, so much more to the scene. I could see where, um, from the animator's point of view and the TD's point of view, um, it just would make it so much easier. I think, I, well, not that it would make it easy, but I think it would make certain things easier. Uh, Jason, we've, we've really crossed the line now between, post and production like do we think that on a on a film that the vfx guys are fully production now with with this kind of level of stuff i mean i would think the visual effects guys should be super happy about this because you know everybody always gets sort of short shrifted on the set you know we'll go get in and get your stuff and and you know leave the production unit to do their job and i think I think uh I think everybody working together makes for a better product and also I think that moving moving the motion capture into the real environment has to has to bring at least 40% better results for multiple reasons uh and this this is is this pretty much the first time that's been done more or less on the first film they did a um, exterior capture with the ending you would, you didn't have seen it but it, it's on Golden Gate Bridge the point about it though it was in daylight and they struck a whole lot of issues because you know the whole right. point of it is meant to identify markers and there were lots of pings and stuff coming off cars right lots of reflections and stuff that were causing issues here it was the rev- the reverse they were in you know torrential rain and uh, and mud and trying to do motion capture volumes with fern trees and just ridiculous kind of conditions right. um, I, I listened to a podcast with the uh that my friend ian did for american cinematographer for with uh michael saracen the dp and he said there were multiple times where he would have to tell the or ask the the mocap performers to turn their face camera lights off so that they could 
because they were, you know, having a, a strobe or some sort of effect on the face to keep up with the shutter sync, the higher speed camera that they would record the face with. And, uh, you know, but uh, and in his in his podcast, he spoke really in depth about, you know, the teams all working together and how he would ask them to do one thing. They would ask him to do something else. He would ask the text to do this or that or, you know, and everybody was really on point to collaborate and work together, which I think always makes in any, regardless of the size of your crew or technical nature, you know, everyone being in sync and collaborating, working together is always, you know, preferred and, you know, pretty key, I think. Can I give a shout out to uh, Quentin and his team at the, Quentin's the paint supervisor and uh, people like Michael, who I actually know listen to this podcast because when I was at wetter i was in the back 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 rooms of where the paint and rotor guys were and uh and they said they listened to the show so hello to you guys if you are listening but the thing that i think is remarkable i got to see a couple of shots and i'm just gonna flag why i always go on about paint and roto as being unsung heroes because it's not like this is the first time i mentioned it um if you look at any of the behind the scenes stuff you'll see uh, andy circus and the guys riding on horses and that's completely valid, right? You want to get their performances and stuff. But if you think about it, there's just no point in using the lower half of Andy Circus's performance because A, his legs are the wrong length. B, he's sitting on a saddle. And C, his, his entire uh, way of balancing his weight is predicated on having stirrups and you know things that are built into a saddle that the apes don't have. So the thing that the paint and rotor guys had to do without any clever tech wonder buttons is remove Andy Circus and put in the back of the horse again. <laughs> and they couldn't get the animation to work until they had a really good back of the horse because otherwise no character animator could judge whether the ape was looking like it was really sitting on the back of the ape uh, or, or back of the horse or whether, you know, felt like it was floating or it was drifting or, you know, was like unbalanced. So not only did the paint and rotor guys have to remove Andy Circus and every other actor that was on a horse, but they had to completely, perfectly in stereo replace the horse's back with all of its sheen and everything else so the animators could then put the apes on and then of course uh, reveal whatever part of the horse wasn't hidden by what was going on can you think like i mean just how hard it is in a shot where you've got like four horses down by the the, the river or whatever and they're kicking up spray from the water and it's shot in stereo and your job is just to remove these guys and put in the horsebacks and make it perfect to the point that you know it could be sold I mean, that's like, that's just like hard work. There's just no other way around it. It would take them three months to do a single shot. And these guys and girls are just, uh, you know, they're obviously they're not the rock stars that normally get featured on by people like us. But man, I got a lot of respect for those guys. I'm surprised. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm surprised there's not a suicide net around that building. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Well, you know, it's, I mean, yeah. I, I spent my first couple of years working in the business. I did uh, rotoscoping and paint, you know, back in the days of uh, Parallax Matador software was the uh, state of the art at the time. And, uh, you know, I know uh, I still have a good number of friends who do that kind of work uh, full time. And, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, uh, it's it can be a thankless job, although I think, you know, certainly people in the business, I think, really appreciate. And I know a large number of compositors who have a great deal of appreciation for the things that Paint and Roto do. But I think, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's 
and and the art form itself, I think, has advanced so much. Uh, the kinds of things that people are capable of doing at times, even just brute forcing their way through some of the most gifted and talented uh, artists, I think, working are people who work um, in paint and roto and do really just amazing, amazing work that goes largely unnoticed as it's intended to do most of the time. Yeah, because our eye goes to Caesar on the back of the horse, right? Our eye goes to the really good acting performance that has been translated to the character thing of the guy who's talking on the back of the horse, which is completely what it should be, right? And yet, I mean, this like, literally, I'm not making that like three months on a shot so that you could have these four horses cleaned up so that we would all believe. Because the second that they weren't, that they were floating, that they felt like they were... Oh, yeah. You'd see you'd it just, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And if the back of the horse looked odd, it would draw your attention to it. If the sheen as the horse moved, because they were... Now, there were some digital horses in the film, and uh, clearly <laughs> ones that were being hit by rocket launchers were probably some of them. But I'm talking about those shots where, you know, earlier in the film, where you've got horses that are in the forest, horses down by the dam... Uh, there's rain, there's mist, and it's in stereo. I mean, that's the other thing. It's yeah, all got to yeah, be properly crazy. done at the right depth. I think you would again throw it. Yeah, go on. I was going to say, I, I think the reward is that um, you help execute an insane shot of an ape on a horse with a rifle or machine gun. I mean, that <laughs> is payment enough. You know, it's it's like the uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, you know, a robot with a sword. I only spent an afternoon with these guys, but these are some of the nicest, sweetest guys and girls. And when I say guys, I'm not trying to be gender uh, rude, but, you know, like in the general terms. But, you know, I mean, let's face it. Like it is a, it is, is hard slog and, you know, it's not the glamour side of the industry, right? You're not standing on, uh, on top of a building taking great shots of uh, San Francisco skyline on an expense account. Um, you are, you know, sitting in a cubicle in a, you know, admittedly they have great coffee machines, but you're still sitting in a cubicle in a space, just working your ass off, um, getting these things, uh, these things right. Anyway, I just yeah, uh, but and just in you know, in along those same lines, like without the work that those men and women do that do that really the hard slog, like you're saying without that work, like, you know, the rest of it wouldn't matter. I mean, there might be the occasional good shot, but without it, you know, you're not going to have so many of the things that I think, you know, all of us and everybody listening to the show, the kind of stuff people just love. I mean, you're you're not going to have that without the hard work that people like that do. I mean, I think it's a, you know, I mean, not to sound too corny, although I guess I've already done that, but, um, you know, it just speaks to the the nature of filmmaking and visual effects in particular, too. It, I mean, it's a team, you know, effort really. So it's like it, you can't. In the end, it's like why why did the, I think they were saying right? Seven hundred people worked on this uh, show at Weta full time, right? Or some more than full time, uh, just on uh, this project. And you know, that's a big that's a big team, right? At at the other end of the spectrum, the um. The stuff that's rendered that uh, is coming out of the pipeline. Two things about that. Firstly, um, and we're going to do a story on this. Uh, ha- we haven't published it yet, but we will be doing a story on it. Um, Weta has moved over to a new renderer, uh, which is just incredible. It's used a little bit on this film, um, but it's uh, going to be used a lot more on upcoming films um, uh, called Manuka. But the other thing about it is that their entire pipeline for some time now, be it Renderman or Manuka, is... Um, because Random Man was the other renderer or the primary renderer on Apes. Um, the uh, the deep pipeline that, that uh, Weta have um, 
helped pioneer because obviously uh, a number of companies have deep pipelines but the extent to which Weta has embraced deep and how well it works and in their nuke pipeline just how well um, they exploit the tools for these very complicated uh, sequences we've got tons and tons of apes and you know you don't have to use the hold up mats you don't have to worry uh, about how things are placed and there is entire stages to the production now where we would have had to have done roto in the past but we don't have to because on their own rendered material it's carrying so much data forward uh, so at one end you've got the guys in paint and roto who are just in some cases just doing like having a still or a couple of frames of a horse back with no saddle on it and then just animating it by hand in to make it work over months and at the other end, you've got some very, very hardcore tech that allows them to put tons of apes in a forest chasing elks and have a natural integration between the effects animation, the, uh, the, the stuff that's been kicked up, the digital characters, and also the you know, interaction of the digital characters uh, one to another. It's, um, the Weta pipeline is very, very sophisticated. Obviously, it's sophisticated, but it uh, never ceases to amaze me how much those guys in R&D are kicking it and how much the new compositors are taking advantage of it i mean uh matt th there is just a like a blurring of that line between 2d and 3d when you start getting to new compositors that can fire off the sort of stuff that they can oh no doubt i mean i you know and i know eric uh, winquist uh, was one of the supervisors on this job too and eric um when i was at weta i was there for a brief period of time at the tail end of uh king kong and I, you know just uh, a side note i was thinking you know, what they were working so hard to accomplish in terms of rendering Kong in King Kong, they did it, you know, a hundred times over in this movie. Uh, and it looked so much uh, more sophisticated, but I was going to say, Eric, um, was one of the first, com we were using shake still at the time, uh, largely on Kong and nuke was just sort of starting to become a part of the pipeline. And Eric was really leading the charge. Um, doing a huge uh, number of, uh, you know, set extensions and uh, projections and stuff in Nuke, um, you know, really augmenting uh, the 2D with that sort of extra, you know, two and a half or 3D tool set that I think, you know, now Nuke is totally capable of uh, all kinds of 3D um, interactivity as well. But uh, I think, yeah, it, it's it's sort of like at, um, and Sony was like this too. At Sony, you know, you'd, it, you were a lighter compositor and they really made no distinction between the two. And I think you're starting to see that more and more, um, especially with the advent of now stuff like uh, the deep compositing pipelines and stuff. It's, uh, it just makes sense, you know, the data and the ability to, to um, have, you know, an individual shot, uh, ensconce so much data per pixel you know it just makes sense that sh things are going to move in that direction so yeah i mean it's it, cool <laughs> and do they have a are they i read somewhere that they're doing a 4k stereo pipeline well well because of course uh hobbit right 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 i didn't realize they carried that through everything i guess that would make sense so uh, the elephant in the room is the boo-ha-ha -ha about um, circus versus the animators. Uh, I've not got any first-hand experience about that myself. Um, in other words, I've not had any direct kind of stuff from people I know uh, at whether I certainly don't know any circus. But 
Um, there has been some interesting articles also published saying this is an argument that does no one any services whatsoever. And I think one of those stories pointed out, which I think was pretty observant, that, you know, a tremendous amount of a performance that you see on screen is contributed to by the editor. And while an actor will stand up and, you know, thank his agent and thank his director and maybe even if you're lucky, the DOP, hardly ever stand up and thank the editor for picking the right takes and, and cutting together stuff that otherwise didn't work mm -hmm. and making it work. And that, that none of the crafts like editing, which are very senior and incredibly respected, kind of get the overall um, uh, respect that maybe we want for the animators. Um, well... I, I think the piece you're talking about was David Cohen's piece yeah. in Variety, if I'm not mistaken. And David Cohen, you know, I think has been a great um, sort of mouthpiece. Well, I shouldn't call him a mouthpiece. I, I don't mean to degrade. I mean, he's a great, you know, he's a great writer, reporter um, for the industry. But I think he's also been a great supporter of uh, visual effects and a lot of the conversations that have taken place around um, some of the labor issues that people have been discussing over and, and the subsidy issues and stuff that happened to um, create some of the protests and stuff. David's always there covering the stuff. I've seen David at Seagraph a number of times, and he's an active uh, voice in the community. And I think David really, you know, uh, made a great argument and got it right. I would just say that um, you know, and I don't know the back and forth of, uh, who said what, or what, you know, who did what, I don't even know if that's really important, but I do think the one thing I would say that, um, I think maybe is the cause for some people's, uh, feathers to have gotten ruffled is just that, you know, I think, uh, it connects back to the larger issues around, um, labor and uh subsidies and long work hours and you know no overtime people not getting paid some of the sort of the dark not that that happens at weta but some of the dark things that people hear about in the industry i think create uh situations where uh visual effects artists uh not across the board but in some uh circles i think feel uh like they're given short shrift and they're um kind of the low man on the totem pole, as it were, you know, low person on the totem pole, um, where what they're bringing to the screen in terms of the bottom line for the studios and the box office, um, you know, is sort of beyond the pale. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, uh, revolution in terms of the money that's generated in cinema going, uh, and, you know, DVD sales and, you know, ancillary sales of this, that, and the other because of visual effects. And I think that, uh, I, so I think, you know, maybe there's a, some, some soreness there that, uh, when somebody says something that seems to suggest that, um, you know, it's all the performance and there's very little else, uh, even if that's not what was said, when it, when it comes across that way and it's written that way, even if they're misquoted, I think it, it's really upsetting for people. And I can completely understand, uh, people's feeling that way, but I think David Cohen, uh, really got it right in saying that, it, you know, in the long run, I really don't know that it does anyone any good, um, to, to sort of raise that kind of ire. I mean, the bottom line is there, there just is no doubt in my mind that, that, uh, you know, it's much more than digital makeup. It's no doubt in my mind that 
what happens is that the animators interpret the performance that someone like Andy Serkis gives because there is not a one-to-one mapping. It's not Andy Serkis' right. face. It's an ape with different anatomical anatomical features. It, the, the mouth in particular, just, you know, you can't do a direct mapping. Um, the eyebrows, you can't do a direct mapping or you end up with the, as we said, like the Sigourney avatar kind of look. Um, so, yeah, but by the same token, I have no problem with that because... You know what? Uh, Toby interpreted the lines on the page to make his acting choices. And nobody says, well, that means that the script was playing no role. Um, similarly, you know, no one says, well, obviously, obviously Toby could give a great performance because, you know, it was on the page. <laughs> I mean, what's, what's wrong with it being interpreted by the actor from the page and being interpreted by the animator from the uh, motion capture? Like, uh, I yeah, just I have no problem with that. It's a mutually beneficial relationship, the the motion, motion capture actor and the animator and the compositor and the DOP. Yeah. And, I mean, like I said, it's a collaborative thing. It's just that it's a new thing, so someone wants to take credit for it in some fashion. I'm not saying – I'm not pointing fingers at Andy Serkis. I'm, I'm, he has – it would. I don't know the guy, and I would imagine that he has enough respect for all the – things that have happened over the years between his his abilities and the things that have helped him be who he is that he would you know have whatever but uh i think i think it's just because it's something new and nobody knows how to categorize it so everyone's just trying to get their little piece of the pie uh it seems like an argument that'll go away soon hopefully I, I hope so. And I think, you know, in the end, the realization, you know, when you just look at how it's done and you read about, or if you're participating in it, you know how it's done. It's a symbiotic relationship. You know, there's, yeah. you, you couldn't have Andy Circus alone or whomever, not Andy, you know, the performance capture actor alone doing just the performance without, um, you know, the incredibly hard work of everybody involved in what goes into making, you know, the ape, the fur, the textures, the lighting, the, you know, the yeah. subtle uh, secondary animations and, you know, pr and primary animations that, Unless... and, and the translations like, and, and same with the animator though, the animators, I think uh, in that, in specifically the animators, although I think you could say this about the whole effects team, you know, they're also given a huge, uh, leg up and given so much great material to utilize as reference or direct reference when it comes from, you know, a skilled and gifted, somebody who's really good at, you know, uh, pantomime or acting, you know, in that respect, I think is really powerful and it helps create better visual effects, um, and, and a better starting point for the visual effects as well. So I think there's a symbiosis there that goes on that you, you know, you, it, it's a mistake to deny, uh, either side uh, credit. Well, it's like the way they shot Rango, right? With uh, with yep. with cameras for reference, and even though the animators were said we didn't copy the performance, we used it for reference. It's still they didn't have to sit there and th think of it in their head. It gave them that leg forward to to add creative input to an actor's creative input. Can I can I give you a really interesting piece of stuff because I. Hmm sort of a, was a slightly different take on it. We came up in FX PhD and I think it's worth thinking about. One of the things that um, happened, and I was doing research on um, facts, which is the you know facial uh, character animation stuff that is the poses that goes into a lot of uh, uh, animation. Okay, in, in the original um, uh, set of research around the time of facts, which was not to do with animation, they did uh, an interesting piece of research where they were trying to work out how well people could fake an expression. And so they 
you know, said to people sitting there, and I'm kind of mucking this up a little, but bear with me. Um, hey, act surprised. And then people would act surprised and they'd take a photo of that. And then they would, um, later in the interview, they said, sometime in the next hour, we're going to, you know, surprise you, just so you know, but we're not going to tell you when. So we get a genuine response. Okay, they go. And then about, you know, 45 minutes in, somebody like quietly goes behind them and sort of fires a gun or something. And they just look, obviously, naturally surprised. And then they compared all of those uh, facials, which is, can I look surprised? And what did I generally look like when I was surprised? And, and they did more than just surprise with guns, but you get the idea, right? Where I'm going with this is that they discovered that actors, especially good actors that seem to have a lot of employment, were much better at matching their own genuine response with the one that they acted, which is probably not surprising, right? Because they're actors. <laughs> and people weren't very good at faking their own emotional responses, even though you know they were in an environment where they you know, knew that's what they're trying to do. And so one of the things that I think a really good uh, mocap artist brings, like Circus, brings to the table is that he is giving the animators a very genuine reading of what a face would do when it is feeling like it has been betrayed and it is showing the emotion of betrayal. And as a very good actor, he is able to make his face, obviously not consciously, but, you know, whatever, um, come up with the right lifting of eyebrows and whatever that is looks natural. Because if you think about it, if you had someone who's not a very good actor, but just a very good technical animator, um, and they looked in the mirror and they modeled their own face looking obviously, you know, like betrayed, maybe they're not actually making the face that is the honest betrayal. They're making the face that we all know as a bit of a fake emotion. And so what you actually get is the animators having kind of better input source. So that when they make a Caesar look like he's betrayed, we read it as a more honest emotion because it mm -hmm. came from a more honest performance because Circus is a good actor and he can do honest performances, which is why the whole method school of acting you know, has weight in the first place. And in fact, they tested method actors and method actors tended to come out really, really well in this research. And I'm talking like years ago, like this, decades ago, this research was done. This is before computer animation. But I just thought it was a really interesting take on this, that like what we're talking about is not just whether or not the actor's performance is carried forward, but maybe, you know, the number one thing you should do when getting uh, guys to do performance capture is get the best possible actors you can because they're going to give you the most genuine emotional responses, which gives you the best reference to try and translate that to the best on-screen uh, performance. Maybe we've seen other motion capture where it looks fake because the emotions are fake, not because the technology couldn't pull it off. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, I think that, <laughs> that definitely, uh, you know, I could see that being the case. That would really make a lot of sense uh, in terms of, you know, what you see that works and what you see that doesn't. Yeah, I think that's really well stated. I mean, if you watch Andy Serkis's B-roll outtakes and, you know, the performances that you see, and they've, they've got them, we've published them, a bunch of places have published them. He looks really like he's in the moment, you know, like this is not a guy who's dialing it in or calling it in, sorry. He's, he really looks like he's upset. He really looks like he's exhausted, whatever it is. And I just feel like maybe one of the reasons that uh, he's been so successful is he has such an expressive face, but he's just very good at dialing in genuine expressions on, on well, command. And, and the other actor, too, who plays the Toby. role of Koba. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, same. It's just so. spectacularly yeah. good. And, yeah. and again, they understand the process in the pipeline. They understand what's going to happen after they're gone. Right? Yeah. So they can, you know, to a point, obviously, but they understand what their purpose is and what information they're conveying 
beyond acting. The acting is the main job. And then there's certain technical things that, that flow through that are still coming from their acting. So, yeah, I, I would, not that, I, oh, I can say ahead. not that anyone listening to this show would argue with it. I'm pretty sure because, you know, we're probably preaching to the choir, but, yeah. but if you wanted any proof, I would say, look at, um, Maurice, who I've already said, I think is spectacular. I love Maurice. This is my favorite. Played by a woman. Right. Yeah. And uh, she's a really, I've read interviews with her. She's just a really good theater actress. And I think, well, you know, if nothing shows this better to me, then you can take a really good theater actress, actress, and she can play a really convincing male orangutan because you've got her interpreting the emotions well. And then where does animators interpreting her face really well? But I mean, you know, a female actress to a male orangutan, that's not a direct mapping. Is he, a, is he more of a gibbon? I, I thought he was an orangutan. Is it? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's very so many variations of orangutan. I always think of Clyde from Every Which Way But Loose. But uh, the um, he, and he gives a really solid. Well, she gives a really solid performance in this, especially yeah, in the bus and stuff. Yeah, Maurice was my favorite. I mean, Maurice looked the most real to me. Uh, and I I think in the article that I read, they said that Maurice actually has the most hairs, like 906,000 yep. hairs or something. And, and a lot of it's matted too. Yeah. I mean, it's the way that the way that the hair is matted and greasy and has stuff on it and, you know, it's raining and, and it all creates like a real sort of historical sort of story on the ski, on the fur. Like you mm-hmm. see stuff has happened and, and, and he doesn't talk. So yeah. granted, you have the ability to convey stuff through words on the screen, but the words on the screen actually makes it harder because the words on the screen are telling you exactly what they're saying and how they're feeling. And then you have to match that exactly with emotion and acting in the character. And I bought I bought Maurice hook, line and sinker. I mean, he was awesome, especially in that yeah. teaching scene, like you were saying, yeah. Uh, Pay attention, uh, kids. I'm trying to teach you yeah. this thing. I mean, it was all there on the screen. Yeah. It's just splendid. And he's reading and, the black hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's reading. She. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's like uh, really mixing your gender problems. Okay, well, clearly we didn't hate this film. <laughs> uh, Were no there film... any shots that stuck out that you guys didn't think worked so well? I, I, I admit a couple of the elk shots I thought were um, uh, like a little... I don't know. Maybe they look like they float when they're running naturally, mm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the one I already agreed with you on, which is I think that the the least successful ape was the wife of Caesar, who didn't really seem to have kind of the um, facial, emotional, or intelligence. It was almost like she wasn't as intelligent a creature. It didn't. I didn't buy that Caesar would mate with her. Maybe she's a foxy <laughs> ape chick, but if I was like uh, Caesar, I wouldn't have picked her. It was, was a little... Well, and, they, and they had the headdresses on yeah. too, which yeah. I thought was kind of a curious thing that, that, that altered the way in which at least me, the way I could visually interpret their character, they, they had their sort of accoutrement, which, you know, signified that they were female, but it also kind of somehow it minimized their performances in a way to me. Like it pulled, it took them into a different realm where they didn't seem like they were on the same level, uh, as the, as, which sounds terrible, but as the male is apes. This, it's, it's, we got some gender it, politics going on here it, with our primates. Am I, it, I felt like it. Is it, is it weird for me to say that, that those scenes reminded me of the blue lagoon? It'd be weird if you said that you thought she was foxy. Yeah, well, that's, that's what you. I thought. That's you all you, buddy. Like, yeah. 
<laughs> but yes, it gave me a Brooke Shields Blue Lagoon baby birth vibe. You oh, know. Okay. I once got uh, an enormous amount of trouble by claiming that, <laughs> that a flame was the first computer I found sexually attractive. <laughs> um, I would the, say I, the only I would other, say the shots oh. that didn't work for me were just mm. there was a couple wides of like the sort of herds of apes. I don't know what you would call a herd of apes, but uh, the the herd of apes. There's you know, and it seems inevitable. I, I am not faulting anyone, but it seems inevitable that when you have that amount of digital characters. Some of them are just going to look weird. You know what I mean? Like yeah, some of them yeah. just the physics were a little weird. They look a little rubbery or they bounce a little bit or they, you know, their 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 climbing physics are a little like a, a hair off. And that's only because they're in reference to, you know, 40 other apes that are perfect. So, you know what I mean? It's just like, I don't know. I don't know how that happens specifically, but it didn't bother me, but I noticed it. You know I mean? Yeah, and I, I was I was going to say just, probably just the, FYI, oh. sorry, a group of apes is called a shrewdness. Ah, a shrewdness <laughs> of apes. That's I think that's my next band name. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to remember that at the next faculty meeting. <laughs> um, but uh, the only shot I could think of, uh, aside from maybe what I mentioned before, was the the um, it's one shot and it's a the camera I think is supposed to be feeling like it's on a. <clears throat> on a crane, maybe it is on a crane. I don't know, but it's, it's where, um, the apes have essentially captured the humans, uh, and they're herding the humans yep. and they're going from screen left to screen, right. And I think it's Koba <laughs> or one of his, yep. uh, head guys who's on a flagpole. Yep. And, and what's, there's something, what's your thought on that shot? Well, my feeling was that that shot, the reason why, at least for me, it didn't work very well, uh, visually is it felt like the move felt, 2d uh the camera move it didn't feel like it was a real proper crane move and it it just felt like a a comp like it felt really compy i guess for lack of a better word and um i i can't i don't i only saw that one time to know that shot is a comp in fact they had they had groups of people down on the ground and they just filmed them you know as you do like group one and then you moved them all over and that made it group two and you moved all the same people over and made uh, it group three etc um, and then and, and just, the people, the survivors, like I, that's some I mean, of them, the survivors. Yeah. yeah, some of them, I just couldn't buy that they were. And this is not a fault of the shot. This is a fault of extras casting. Some of them, they were so just like you know, they were like fat. You know, they were like <laughs> fat people, like hanging out. Like, what, wouldn't everybody be starving? Like, you know, um, and I. Yeah, you know the uh, you know the thing. They didn't I did look like, like they were in peril at all. Okay, you know? you know the thing I did like, and it's a kind of related thing. Is I really liked that in the ape camp they weren't all the same age. There were lots of kids in shots, and like you know when there wasn't just the kids doing the teaching, right? Whenever a group of apes would gather, there'd be like a little baby chimp climbing on someone's back or something. Mm-hmm. Like I I think for us to believe that there were that many apes, they had to have been breeding a lot, and it. You know, otherwise I was going to where'd all these apes come from, right? Like, I mean, did the San Francisco Zoo have that many apes to start with? <laughs> um, it, it just felt like they they were a real community with like loads of different aged creatures. Um, I did like I the felt, wide. No, go ahead. I was going to say the human colony, however, felt a bit homogeneous to me. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt like no it thing. felt like extras casting, you know, yeah. basically. And and that was maybe it was difficult to get. Uh, or maybe that was less of the focus budgetarily, you know, from a producer's point of view or something like, well, okay, we'll just get, you know, X number of people and, you know, muddy up their clothes and, you know, we'll have, and there were a couple good scenes, you know, I think in the human 
encampment that I, when they were sort of celebrating, when the lights come on, there's the kid on the father's shoulders and stuff. And, you know, I kind of was like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, it feels like they're, they have reason to be happy, but they, if only they knew, you know. Now, <laughs> so, I don't I mean, know. It, it worked, but I, I think well, that. I don't know what happened, but did you guys notice in one of the trailers, there was a shot of a, in one of the earlier trailers, there was a shot of a naval boat coming down a river like it was a, like a destroyer. And, and that just never appeared in the film. And I still don't know where oh. that was. Was it from a flashback that didn't happen? Was it I the military it was a, arriving at the end that I never happened? I thought it happened? was a ship pulling into, like, under the Golden Gate Bridge. That's what I thought it was. And I, There was I, a shot in an earlier trailer, definitely, of a full, like, kind of, not a battleship, but that kind of a shape. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah like underway. A destroyer or something. Yeah, a destroyer underway at water. And I, I'm dying to know where that came from. And there is a destroyer that's wrecked sitting on one side, which I right, think is where right. the armory was. But I got a feeling there was a whole destroyer subplot that got lost early in the, um, in the first cut of the film or something. Or maybe um, they find a destroyer and sail it down to shoot the apes or something. I don't know. Hey, um, it's pretty much open for the sequel, though, isn't it? With the uh, they're oh, coming. Yeah. I hope so. I want another one. Well, I mean, you can't possibly imagine that Fox, in, and, and while I criticize the Fox poster department, I think Fox generally are a really, you know, healthy I hope studio. They, I hope they make the one where the apes come back to uh, today, which they did in the old, because that one was really good, bad, but like, so weird. So I if you, okay, so if, I don't know, and I have no inside knowledge, but if you were writing or doing the plot outline for this next third apes, do you, how far do you want to take it? Like, how far do you just get? Because obviously now we've set it up that the military are coming down. That the, you know, after years of semi uh, semi peaceful existence, it's all on, and the apes have to win because we know where we're going with this. But there was seemed to be a lot more time elapsed in the original movie yes. and and jason just so you know in the original movie the one that you didn't see as i say the original movie i shouldn't say that in the movie prior to this that you didn't see um we actually saw the rocket taking off that charlton heston's in like they uh, in so the they film. went for it right so they're setting it up they're totally setting it up it, it was no denial of that ship taking off and it looked like the same ship and it was happening right. on tv screens in the background right so but in my head, from when I was a kid, and of course you'd know this, Matt, being an expert, mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of years elapsed between that oh, yeah. going off and yeah, like hundreds of years. Yeah, for so sure. like how they, far they, do we take they go through. Thing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would, I would think if if it's true, I, that was the thing I wasn't sure about. Like, was it true that the army was actually coming? Like the military is coming? Like. It oh, yeah. seemed like it could have been something that was being no, used I, as a no. ploy to get him to lower his gun or like, you know. No. I, so if the they're actually when coming. When he says they're coming, yeah. Well, then, yeah, then then the next film is all out war. Or they skip the war and go to the aftermath of the war and it's a more, although I, it seems like. That's what this movie that, is. That's what this, this movie is all aftermath. No, this movie is all aftermath, really. I could see skipping the great, the big war, and having it be the aftermath, and maybe it's not Caesar. Nah, no, nah, the guy that's the guy that approved that poster with the burning um, bridge. That guy, <laughs> he wants marketing. The war. He wants the war. He wants well, to sell okay. the war. I mean, I, I would, lo- I wouldn't mind seeing the war. Uh, speaking my, of which, you, though, that guy wants the uh, an ape sitting on a rocket going yeehaw as it drops out of the uh, launch <laughs> yeah. bay. <laughs> yeah, Doctor Strange ape or something. Yeah, but um, I, I did want to single out one shot though that. Uh, was my favorite in the whole movie because okay. it's so over the top and ridiculous. And whoever worked on it, 
I just personally want to thank you for making it because it is so badass. And if I ever see your reel, uh, you know, if I'm, you know, in charge of some show, like you're hired. Um, it's the shot with, uh, I believe it's Koba guns a blazing slow motion coming out of the flames uh with all the um oh, yeah. distortion in the foreground i mean that shot is so ridiculous and so stylized but it's awesome i just i thought well, that was such a cool shot i dug it i feel like they there's a lot of nods to you know like classic stylized shots like that like that's you know mm -hmm. like Chuck Norris coming out of the water in Delta Force or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like... I, I would be coming out of the water in uh, Apocalypse Now, but hey, okay, yeah. Well, that too. But he shoots a machine <laughs> gun. Chuck Norris, uh, what are you yeah. talking about? Hey, come on. Uh, but but also the Hans Gruber shot at the end where Koba dies. That's total diehard. That was, I was expecting a slow-mo yep. fall with yeah. like Hans Gruber's face on the ape. And I like that, that there was no chance that he survived. It wasn't like he sort of fallen down. Maybe he survived when we bring him back in the sequel. It's yeah, like no. we'll drop an entire crane on his ass. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, he's dead. <laughs> he's gone. We're done. But I did, I did like the, uh, I, I guess maybe my mind always goes to comparisons, but the um, I thought the, the ape's, you know, uh, lair was awesome. It had like a, an Endor vibe in that sort of oh. wide of it. Yeah, no, I thought it was it was pretty. Hey, I wanted to tell you something really interesting. I, I, it happened to me in this film, which is really unusual. So clearly I'm a smart ass. Clearly I'm like somebody that knows a lot about films or thinks he does and, you know, thinks he can see what's going on in the film and read. And, you know, I'm the guy that's sitting next to you when you're watching the thing going, no, clearly he isn't dead because dot, dot, dot. So I'm sitting there watching the film and they shoot Caesar and they say Caesar's dead and I think to myself well obviously he isn't dead because he's the star of the film and then I actually it's a digital character it'd be completely feasible to kill him off and have Andy Serkis come back and play somebody else it doesn't have to be Caesar like he could kill off the lead character because it's a digital character it's not like you know you're going to open the next film and they're going to say oh it was so much better when they had Caesar in it you know he's missing so because there were digital actors i suddenly lost my safety net that this is a star and obviously the star has to make it to the sequel i was like well maybe they did shoot caesar that would be interesting did you guys get that at all or you just thought no there's no way he's dead when they were shot i i thought i thought he was dead i mean i was yeah, just I like did oh, too. yeah they shot him like i just was like and because I, I thought it was like the Shakespearean kind of, you know, et tu brute, like, you know, and, and yeah. Koba had killed Caesar. And I just thought, oh, they're really going for that narrative. You know, it's this total Shakespearean kind of um, unfolding. And so when it turned out that he wasn't dead, <laughs> I actually kind of thought when they find him and he, he he looks dead and then his eyes kind of move, I was like, oh, okay, you know, he's, he's coming back. And it actually felt kind of almost trite plot wise. Like I thought it would have been more interesting yeah. In a way, it almost would have been more interesting plot-wise for me if it had been then the son yeah, the somehow son had a, came yeah, to a realization so. and then defeated uh, yeah. Koba somehow. Well, he does. I, he just does it under the, you know, much sort of on-the-nose push of the father. Yeah. It's like he's, he never – his character, you know, turns – but he didn't ever become like the alpha, which I think yeah. would have been kind of interesting. Well, maybe that's that's the next film. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, hats off to Weta Digital, uh, who did an absolutely spectacular job on the uh, film. 
um, really was primarily a film that was just one visual effects house. We don't have a lot of those these days. Um, I believe, I'm going to say MPC did the previs. Um, I'm going to check that. In fact, I'm looking across the room at my uh, fellow researcher who's trying to sign language which, which company did do the previs. But, okay, it wasn't Weta, but it was probably Cinedev, MPC, and Halon, there you go. But it was primarily, uh, obviously, Weta that did the visual effects work and the apes work, and and that is what you're going to see the film for. Um, guys, thank you so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Um, Jason, what are you up to, and where can people follow you? Uh, have a, my, my brother and I, the Diamond Bros, have a bunch of work that we've been working on since April, about to come out, like three or four spots, so keep an eye out for that. And you can see us at thediamondbros.com. I'm... Uh, at Jason Diamond on Twitter and uh, just a little sort of plug for one of my own things. We've been, my brother and I've been working on a collaborative online workflow sort of jammy called frame IO, which is the act, which is the name of the product and the, and the actual website frame dot IO. Yeah. I know you've, you've got a invitation to register for info i guess once it's out we're keen to look at it for fx guide um when it's something yeah. you can actually test drive and, and use yeah well you'll be on the beta you'll be on the beta Thank you, sir. and uh, um, yeah and I, I just want to finish that that the the larger co-developers are emory wells and john traver who are uh the driving force well i i really yes. respect you as a filmmaker so if you're involved in it i'll uh give it due attention well, thank uh, I you. mean that genuinely. Hey, um, and uh, what about you, Matt? Uh, you can always find me at Virginia Commonwealth University School of the Arts here in Richmond, Virginia, or on my website at mattwallen.com. And in keeping with uh, our Planet of the Apes, I actually tomorrow all day and Wednesday all day, uh, I'm going to be at VCU in one of our new buildings uh, in training to use our new uh, mocap system that we're having installed, <laughs> which will be kind of fun. You know what so you should new, do? Some fun new toys to play with. You should show the um, orangutan from the 2000 Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Honestly, you should show a thing of that and then say, so this is what we're limited to without motion capture. We'd have people in masks. Um, that's Zanes. the guy. What's the guy that Paul played? Paul Giamatti. Yeah, in the 2000, I mean, if you look at the orangutan in that film, it is just in a... I mean, look, I, <laughs> really good makeup artists that worked on it, but it's just not a candle of breath. Snow Dr. Zayas. Yeah, there you oh go. No God. motion capture and yes, motion yes, capture. capture. This the is the reason one, yeah. we want to have motion capture, yes. And you can always catch me as Mike Seymour on uh, Twitter, although the best place to catch me is on uh, FXGuide or FXPhD.com. And I just want to do a quick shout-out, if I can, uh, two actually shout-outs. Firstly, I want to do a shout-out to uh, Todd Shulton and the production team here that uh, put the show together. Thank them so much. Todd does uh, producing for the stuff and we also the show, and we also have, uh, obviously, editors and and other people that help put that together. So it's a team effort, so thanks, guys. Um, and also a shout-out, uh, Tal Naran, who is... Um, teaching one of our new courses at FXPHD this term is fresh from working on one of uh, or some of the I'm going to say one of the most iconic shots in the in the uh, we did actually mention I don't think I'm allowed to say what it is in Dawn of Planet of the Apes at Weta Digital anyway uh, Tal's terrific nuke artist 
and a really, really good guy. So if you want to check out and learn from the best, uh, he's teaching this term over at fxphd.com, and that's uh, just started. Check out his new course. Guys, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back soon with more summer stuff. And if you're coming to SIDGRAPH, uh, don't forget to kind of look us up. Uh, we'll be doing a uh, functions and stuff. And if you see us walking around on the floor at uh, SIDGRAPH, please say hello. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See ya. Any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com.